Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, links to items we discuss can be found on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. Let's take a moment here for some shameless promotion. Please consider giving us a five-star rating on your podcast app today when you're done listening. As I regularly remind my listeners, it's a fact of the podcast ecosystem that ratings help drive visibility on the apps, which helps us build our audience, which lets us continue to get the great guests that we get on the Jim Rutt Show. So hit us with a five-star rating. And if you have the time, a review is even better. Thanks. Today's guest is Alexander Biner. Alexander is a writer, facilitator, and cultural commentator. He's a co-founder of Rebel Wisdom and leads on Rebel Wisdom's written content and live experiences. He's particularly focused on finding new ways of having in-person conversations around the most essential and challenging ideas. He is also one of the directors of Breaking Convention, Europe's largest conference on psychedelic science and culture. His work on psychedelic culture has been published in the 2016 book, Neurotransmissions, as well as in The Guardian. He also writes fiction and plays traditional Irish music. This is Alexander's second time on the show. He appeared back in Currents 019, where we had a chat around the idea of indigenous narcissism. Welcome back, Alexander. Great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's always good. I love so much of the work that you do. It's just, uh, it's great to see in the world. Today, we're going to chat mostly based on his recent essay, Who's in Charge of Psilocybin? I mean, uh, that's quite of a concept to say who's in charge of psilocybin. (laughs) Before we dig into the kind of the core of the essay, though, it might be useful for the audience to give us the state of play of psilocybin in the world today. Sort of by inference, I suspect you were writing about the situation in the UK. Was that right? Or you talk about it more broadly? Well, it, it is. The essay, which I'll go on to in a minute, was uh, in response to a paper published by two psychedelic scientists in the UK. But the overall, the larger themes, I think, are, are global and are playing out globally. Yeah. So just to be clear, I'd like, love to get a sense of what is the state of play with respect to legality and, of course, you know, borderline, slightly illegal, but culturally kind of well-manifested stuff. <laughs> with respect to psilocybin. And before we get started, I will confess that I actually did psilocybin twice back in uh, my misspent youth and have long ranked it as the most enjoyable with the least side effects of any hallucinogen I ever tried, which is several of them. <laughs> well, that's very interesting to hear. I was actually going to ask you about your uh, your psychedelic history at some point, so I'm glad we, we started there. So psilocybin, yeah, psilocybin is one of or the main active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And psilocybin has possibly been having an influence on, on human culture and, and human development for as long as we've been human. You know, there are theories out there that, that suggest that, but we, we don't know. But certainly psilocybin mushrooms are uh, native to many, many ecosystems and probably have a very, very long history of uh, human use, sacramental use um, in kind of religious, shamanic ceremonies, um, and then also countercultural use as, as personal growth tools. So psilocybin has been illegal in most countries since, the war, since kind of the war on drugs started in the early 70s. And 
has over the last 15 years been shown to have potentially very powerful therapeutic effects on conditions like depression, anxiety, uh, potentially eating disorders. And, you know, the list is, is broad and large. You know, it's almost like you can't do the research fast enough to figure out what psilocybin might be effective for. One interesting and very, very important caveat is that when we're talking about psychedelics being used to heal mental health conditions or to treat mental health conditions, we're not really talking about just the psychedelic. It's psychedelic-assisted therapy. And anyone who's had a psychedelic experience will know that there are, th there are three important things to remember, famously set, setting, and dose, right? So the set is, how are you doing? How, how are you feeling? What's your emotional and mental state? Setting is where you are, very, very important. You know, So in a, in a safe, relaxed environment will give you a very different experience to a, a tense environment that you don't feel safe in. And then dose is how much you've taken. So psilocybin is going through a change because the results from the studies that are coming out, uh, two of which are in uh, the two companies who have psilocybin for depression studies in phase three trials right now, there are many other studies going on. One, one famous one is one actually my wife worked on that was here in the UK, which was looking at psilocybin compared to escitalopram, which is a, uh, a common um, SSRI antidepressant, because actually the clinical trial process in, in the UK and, and different parts of Europe means that you have to compare it to the what's on the market rather than, than just to a placebo uh, in many cases. So Increasingly, we're seeing results coming out of those studies that suggest that, you know, that study, for example, showed that psilocybin was at least as effective as escitalopram. And, you know, many studies have suggested that it could well be with the right therapy and the right setting and the right uh, process, a very effective way to heal mental health conditions. Yeah. And, and I've read some of the research, for instance, the famous Johns Hopkins work on end of life work with terminal cancer patients who had remarkable turnarounds in their attitudes about death and you know, found release from their depression and, you know, really strong. And also some research on the other side of things about meaning and, you know, people who've uh, taken it for other purposes and, you know, they're Half the people said it was the most meaningful experience in their life, right? And I guess we, we'll get into this fork between therapeutic on one side and personal growth on the other. Mm. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that, you know, that this is, I think, worth mentioning really early on. Like you mentioned, that people often rank psychedelics as, as one of the most meaningful experiences in their lives. There was a famous uh, experiment in 1962, often called the Good Friday Experiment, where um, you know subjects were were given psilocybin and uh, many of them had had mystical experiences and there was a follow up study twenty five years later by uh, Walter Panke and that uh, the results of that suggested that people were still ranking that far on you know significant amount of people were still saying yep if I look back at my life that was a really defining moment that was a very significant experience so they are different to other well firstly they're not psychiatric medicines yet. And, and that's an interesting question of, um, of status and, and kind of cultural positioning of what psychedelics are. But even if to some degree we look at them as psychiatric medicines, they're not like other psychiatric medicines. You know, the, the meaning making and the sense of connectedness and the, the mystical experience is actually seen by most scientists in the field to be a core component of what makes people feel better about uh, the world and their lives. Yeah, not, not surprising, right? Those, those are very powerful experiences. 
So let's get into this turf wars aspect uh, of your essay. You start off with describing a recent paper that was written by uh, some, you know, sort of classical doctor types. Yes. Yeah. So there was a, I call it the psychedelic turf wars because that that is what I, I think we're seeing going on right now in the space. And I think even if you're not interested in psychedelics or psychedelic science or mental health treatment, it's a fascinating thing to watch because really it is, you know, to use your terminology, Jim, it really is an example of a, of a game B treatment method hitting game A dynamics. And by game B, I mean a lot of people... Uh, in the psychedelic space are hoping for an, an omni-win situation where people have wide access, where no single entity is in control of access or production. And what's happening is that there's a gold rush going on right now, basically. That's a hugely important context. Huge investment is entering the space, and there is a huge amount of interest from venture capitalists and lots of small pharma companies popping up and, and slightly bigger pharma companies emerging on the space looking to bring uh, these uh, substances to market in some way. So the, the essay I wrote was in response to a paper by uh, two, two psychiatrists, James Rucker and Alan Young. And they work at uh, King's College and the Maudsley. And interestingly, I, I know one of them, not, not very well, but I, I know him somewhat, James Rucker. I was actually, uh, I did the guide training at uh, King's College for a study that is upcoming that got delayed due to COVID. And because it's not a huge community in the UK, uh, also we're, we're connected in that way. So they wrote a paper, which was, uh, it was in the journal Frontiers in Psychiatry. And they were arguing that because psilocybin, hasn't gone through the clinical trial process yet. It's, uh, in their words, well, unwise, but they're effectively arguing that people running legal retreat centers, for example, in the Netherlands, where people are, are given um, psychedelic uh, truffles in that case and, and have a kind of very well-held experience uh, over a few days, they shouldn't be doing that because we don't know that, that psilocybin is, is safe in their view because it hasn't gone through the clinical trial process. And that's, that's kind of the crux of their argument. And they, they kind of make some version of that argument a few times. The, the, the overall thrust of it was that the psychiatric profession are the most qualified to decide how psilocybin is used uh, safely uh, and how it enters the market. And that very specifically, the clinical trial process is the gold standard of bringing a, a new drug to market. So now it gets a little bit nuanced because... I would agree in many cases that the clinical trial process where you've stripped away as many variables as possible and you just hone in for a new drug, sure. And I, I would prefer to take a new drug that had gone through a robust phase one, two, and three. The issue is, or one of the issues, is that psilocybin is not a new drug. And psilocybin is also not just a drug. As I mentioned before, it's a drug-assisted therapy that's being looked at. So why does that matter? Well, one of the reasons it matters is that we have tens of thousands of years of human use to look at, right? And, and safety as well, a safety reports effectively of it's very hard to overdose on psilocybin. You could certainly have an adverse reaction psychologically. And it's really important to note that one of the reasons psychedelics are so powerful is that they're what Stanislav Grof, famous psychedelic researcher, called nonspecific amplifiers. So whatever's going on, turn it up to 11. 
or 11,000. <laughs> yeah, back in my day, uh, you know, back in the 70s, our rule of thumb was there was definitely some risk. And the research in those days seemed to indicate about a 1% chance of being driven to a psychotic uh, situation. And now I think later research has shown those are probably people that were headed in that direction anyway, but no one's sure. But there's certainly some risk of amplifying tendencies uh, towards the psychotic. At least that was the, shall we say, the folk wisdom on the in the college circuit circa 1974 or 75. Yeah, which was not far off. I mean, you know, I have had, I wouldn't say uh, experiences that drove me towards psychosis, but certainly very traumatic experiences from psychedelics. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a risk. It's a bit like uh, being a skydiver in some sense. I often have thought of using psychedelics for personal growth as uh, a kind of extreme sport of the mind, you know, so that, you know, it's, it, it is, um, it has that risk. Though, actually, I want to clarify the record. Skydiving is remarkably safe. It's safer <laughs> than most, act- uh, you'd be amazed. It's, the statistics are incredible. I think the one to compare it to is drive, riding a motorcycle. Riding a motorcycle is insanely fucking dangerous. <laughs> And yet it's so much fucking fun, right? <laughs> and, and so people choose to drive motorcycles. And yet if motorcycles had to go through clinical trials, they go, no, 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 no. The, uh, the risk versus the benefit is not smart at all. So uh, I don't want to be careful not to slander skydivers. My friends are skydivers, and they make that point that it's actually nobody ever dies in skydiving or essentially zero. Well, it's it's a it's a good point. I, I stand corrected on that. And you know, interestingly, there's a, a, a David Nutt, who's a professor here in the UK, who's who's quite you, you know, it's quite a well known name. He got fired from the government's misuse of drugs advisory board. This is kind of how he made his name, at least in the um, you know, he's already successful in what he did, but more in the kind of public consciousness because he said rightly that MDMA is safer than horse riding, and that was the thing that uh, got him kicked out. But, you know, that's a, you know, it is remarkably safe. And we can talk about MDMA perhaps later because um, uh, Matt's uh, organization, a not-for-profit in the U.S., is just going through phase three and very close, really, to bringing MDMA into uh, as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I've been reading, I've been reading that research. It looks very, very compelling that MDMA is a, a really good therapy for PTSD. It actually makes some sense from a, you know, a cognitive neuroscience perspective, which is where these memories get loaded with really powerful negative valences. And if you can reaccess the memory and then rescore them essentially with positive valences, then, you know, from, you know, what we know of cognitive neuroscience, it's a very reasonable explanation for a mechanism by which PTSD could be probably permanently cured by, you know, one or two episodes of, of this kind of, uh, of work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also, you know, MDMA was used underground in marriage counseling as well, especially in the 80s. That was one of the main uses people were using it for. So, any, you know, it works in terms of uh, processing and, and, and reframing your own trauma. It also works in terms of having an empathetic connection to others. So there's a huge amount of potential for it. And we should remind the audience that MDMA is also known via the street names of ecstasy and molly, right? So yes. uh, it was used extensively as a party drug. It came around a little too late for my party in days. So it's one of the few drugs I've never done. And uh, it's also one I can't do currently because of a... Uh, cardiac condition. I, I asked my cardiologist, what psychedelics are still okay? Not that I've done any in the last 40 years, but I'm at least considering it. And he said, LSD is fine and psilocybin, 
but don't even think about MDMA. <laughs> That's particularly counterindicated for the kind of heart arrhythmia that I used to have, which has currently been eliminated, but I don't want it to come back. So. Yeah, yeah, it will raise your heart rate. I'm, I'm sure he's a wise man. So, yeah, so, but I was, I was quite interested. That he said LSD. Oh, that's fine, right? <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so, but anyway, just to you know, put in context, MDA has a you know very extensive '80s and '90s, and I guess currently to this day, uh, street use as uh, ecstasy and Molly. Yeah. So yes, okay. So picking up on on the the essay and um, kind of keen to unpack why you know. Why this particular turf war within a particular community, I think, it speaks to something much, much greater going on in the culture. But my uh, response in the essay to um, the, the article put out by these two psychiatrists was effectively that, well, a few different things. One of which is that the clinical trial process, while important, especially for new drugs, is also riddled with its own issues. Uh, there's obviously we I know you've covered it on the podcast before the the replication crisis, particularly in psychology, but also in in drug development in general. Yeah, biomedicine it's probably worse than it is in psychology. Yeah, 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 and this kind of intersects right both of them. So there's that issue. There's also you know the issue that um, my friend uh, Dr. Rosalind Watts, who was the clinical lead on that imperial trial I was mentioning before, she made some very good points, which I included in the in the essay, which were that. Just the nature of a clinical trial process where it's very, very strictly defined, you're trying stripping out all the variables, is is difficult for psychedelics because of the way they work and because of the nature of the, the therapy and the nature of, well, she didn't mention this, but I would add the sheer number of variables that you're looking at and the fact that they're amplifiers, those variables psychologically get amplified. But um, I'll, I'll plant a flag in that and maybe come back to it. You know, practically, one of the things she mentioned is that the, the clinical trial process tends to do a follow-up with people who've taken the, the drug in the trial six weeks later. Psychedelics have what's called an afterglow period, which actually my wife has, has published on in terms of, uh, of ayahuasca's afterglow period, because that's a period where you feel a lift in mood. And also it's, it's, a, it's arguably, we're not entirely sure yet, a time where you have greater neuroplasticity to, to potentially make changes in your life in your perception. It would be potentially, this is what my wife argued in her paper, a great time for a therapeutic intervention. So that lasts anywhere from sort of a month to two months, uh, depends who you ask. But the clinical trials, they follow up with people in six weeks. And at that point, people are still you know, feeling better. Their depression might be in a kind of remission. But if you follow up with them in 12 weeks or, you know, three or you know, four months later, very often there's a dip again. You know, and so the results get skewed towards, you know, making it look like psychedelics are these wonder drugs, which in some ways they are, but in, in some ways they aren't. So the other piece of information included in it around that was from uh, Robin Carhart Harris, who, who is a well-known name in, in psychedelics as well, was, was leading the team at Imperial. He's a neuroscientist. He was actually just in Time Magazine's top 100 most influential people in the world uh, recently. He argued that we should be supplementing what we're learning in clinical trials from what's happening in real life, in, in retreat centers, et cetera, because, because of the nature of the trial and because it's not a real world conditions. So those are two kind of, let's say, perhaps scientific arguments. But then I also pointed out that what we're seeing is kind of an epistemological turf war. And the question really boils down to who decides who gets access and who decides who's sick and who has the hierarchy of diagnosis and treatment. And the medical profession in our culture has that, and rightly so in many areas. 
However, the difficulty with their argument is that they were arguing that no one should be using it, you know, in retreat centers until we know it's safe. And there, that's a, there's a lot of problems with that because it ignores, um, it, it ignores the thousands of years of use. They do address some of these issues in the paper. So it's, it's a little bit more nuanced. I'd encourage people to read their paper and and the essay to get a kind of full full spectrum of it. Anyway, by the way, we, we'll put a link to that paper up on the episode page so people can get access to it. Yeah. And so to, to kind of boil it down, what I find really interesting about this is that as psychedelics enter the mainstream, they're entering it through the model that traditionally drugs enter it through. What that means is that they're now prey to the same market dynamics that make bringing a drug to market worthwhile if you're a company. And in order for it to be worthwhile, you have to usually, unless you're a not-for-profit, patent it. And the big drama in the psychedelic world over the last uh, six months in particular has been around uh, this big patent grab that's going on. And one of the main companies is, is Compass Pathways, who's come under a lot of fire for this. Um, they're the biggest psychedelic pharma company. They, uh, you know, they, they went public uh, last year, they had an IPO and valued it at over a billion dollars and are in phase three with their version of psilocybin, which I'll talk about in a moment. So they've synthesized, they have a unique synthesis method for psilocybin and they've patented that synthesis method. That's contentious as well. But what they've also done is put out hugely what many see, myself included, as very overbroad patents. And they got in trouble for, you know, their patenting, one of their patenting documents was attempting to patent a therapist putting their hand on the shoulder of a patient. Oh, what or, the fuck, right? <laughs> Someone should beat their ass with a fucking flounder, right? Uh, that's just like ridiculous. Yeah. These uh, patent grabbers, it pisses me off. Uh, before we go on to that, this is really important stuff. Could you update us on the, the distinction between synth synthesized psilocybin and naturally grown psilocybin? I mean, it's easy enough to grow. And in fact, I remember last time I was in Amsterdam, they actually sold mushrooms in plastic trays at convenience stores. And, uh, and where I live in uh, rural Virginia, if you have any uh, cattle on your in your pastures, and if you're lucky enough, after a, a day or two after a thunderstorm, you can go out and harvest them out of your field. So yeah. what's the current state of play between uh, chemically synthesized psilocybin versus the natural psilocybin from the mushroom? So, yeah, so it, it's an important point. So they are the same psilocybin, right? It's the same molecule. There are probably other molecules at play in, in a naturally grown mushroom that, that we don't fully understand yet. But really the active ingredient is psilocybin, which can then get converted to psilocin uh, when, when it's in your, in your body. So when you synthesize psilocybin, you're effectively, you're synthesizing that same molecule that you would find in the mushroom in the field. Often, I've, I, and this is anecdotal entirely, I've heard people say that it is a slightly different experience, experientially. There are, are qualitative differences, but they're not, I would say, in my opinion, they're not so major that it, it, that it would be a major issue of, of, oh, should we be treating people with field mushrooms or, or grown mushrooms in a lab? Uh, the problem with it is that you can't do clinical trials with, with regular mushrooms because you can't get the dose right. You can't guarantee that everyone had the same dose. So you need to synthesize it in some way so that you can guarantee that. So it makes sense to synthesize it. The, the issue is that if you're a pharma company like Compass Pathways and you, you want to get investment, the amount of investment that you're looking for, 
you ideally want to do what pharma companies do and have some kind of monopoly so that you're the ones with psilocybin, especially for this particular indication. Now, what they've done is they've synthesized psilocybin in such a way that they've created what's called a polymorph of psilocybin. The polymorph is a, a unique crystalline structure of a molecule. To my knowledge, at room temperature, though, I, I, I'm sure some chemists would, would know whether it stays at different temperatures. But So you imagine you have this little vial of polymorph of a psilocybin. Let's say I make some psilocybin somewhere, right? If you're looking at these two bits of psilocybin, you have no idea which of them is, is a unique polymorph because you need very, very advanced equipment and real experts who know their stuff in polymorph chemistry, which is pretty complex, to go to put it under a very uh, complicated x-ray machine and go, okay, that's that, that structure. It's like a, you get like a kind of radiograph style report. Obviously, I'm not a scientist, but... Um, x-ray crystography is what they'll... That's do. exactly it. Yeah, exactly. And so... You can patent a polymorph. It's been done before. It's, it's, some people find it quite contentious because it's not actually a different form in the molecule. But as soon as you eat it, it just becomes psilocybin, that same psilocybin that's in the mushroom in the field. But they got the patent. There were many, many more patents they applied for. And you know, various people within the field who thought this was a patent grab uh, at their own expense hired patent lawyers and experts and disputed the patents. And... Almost all of the patents, except for the one, were thrown out. So now Compass have a patent for a polymorph, but linked to that, and potentially, arguably, this is a, gets really hazy in patent law, some people say, well, their patent applications aren't just linked to their unique version of psilocybin, but they're trying to patent psilocybin for all these different conditions. Because they basically, one of the patents is effectively like, one person I spoke to said, it was like they read the entire DSM, which is the, the list of different psychological disorders, and just threw the entire DSM into a patent application. You know, And it does read like that. You know, and they even have applications in there for, for patenting psilocybin for non-mental health um, disorders like cognitive enhancement. And so- Well, that would only apply to their polymorph, right? They can't, you can't patent the naturally occurring uh, chemical. You can't path the naturally occurring chemical. And this is something that is, I've heard a lot of different opinions on. Uh, some people say this just applies to their polymorph, but others say, depending on how a patent office would read that, you could never grant them the patent for psilocybin, but you might be, they might get away at some point with getting the patent for psilocybin for eating disorders, for example, right? And the difficulty with patenting is that when you apply for a patent, it goes to the patent office, the person or people who are looking at it are not experts in psychedelic science. So there's a, a few people have now in response to that, uh, one person called David Casimir and, and some colleagues created a open source patent library called Porta Sophia, where you can search for any psychedelic patent and go, oh, wait, hang on. Someone actually, someone's already talked about MDMA for alcohol misuse disorder so, or alcohol use disorder. Uh, so that can't be patented, but patent offices don't necessarily know that, you know, it's their job to research it, but if you have like, of course you can challenge it based on yes. prior art, right? Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. And I've been involved in a couple of patent troll wars in the tech field. And it's always fun to bust those motherfuckers, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, so this is why this, why this all matters in terms of, and this is what I've learned covering this story for, for a while is that even if those patents even if most of the patents get thrown out, what it does, and this is where the game theory comes in, this is where the real game A dynamics come into it. If you have the most money and you have first mover advantage, you can just 
apply for a bajillion patents. And even if most of them aren't going to be approved, if I want to start my own psilocybin therapy company and I go for funding, one of the first things the funders are going to ask me is, well, okay, we think you're going to need at least a, a million dollars a year on patent disputes. Yeah, the old <laughs> IBM strategy in the early computer industry of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yes. Fun. That's what the big <laughs> boys use against the little boys. And that's a pure game A motherfucker strategy, yeah. right? And people like that should be taken out and shot. And frankly, I will tell you this. One time in my business career, someone tried to pull that on me, and I and I literally turned to them, and he said, basically, I've got a lot more money than you are, and even though you are legally correct, I'll tie you up in your socks for years. And I looked him in the eye and said, you know, for $5,000, I could have you killed. <laughs> and uh, he backed right off. Interesting. I, I, I believe that's to be one of the most immoral game A motherfucker plays. Yeah. Uh, when you know you're in the wrong and use the law to harass people just because you can. Yes, exactly. And the argument, the counter argument from companies doing this in the psychedelic space has traditionally been, well, this is the way it's done. This is the only way to do it. This is the only way to raise that much money. And it's not. It's not the only way. There's a lot of examples out there. It may be the only way to have a billion dollar market cap. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe someone shouldn't have a million dollar market cap around something you can grow in your cattle pasture, right? Yeah. Or you can grow in your greenhouse really easily, right? Not in your greenhouse, but in your closet, right? And, uh, you know, this is, again... Money on money return as the inner engine of game A. I mean, it manifests itself on these set of game theoretical plays, which are just corrupt as shit, right? Yeah. And this is, so I, this is like, this, this is part of the topic that I love. I just think it's so interesting and it's playing out live. There's a kind of embedded logic in, in that game A strategy, right? And I had a, a live debate uh, a few weeks ago with Lars Wild, who's one of the co-founders and the president of Compass Pathways. And so it was a it was a chance to like kind of actually ask him some of these questions directly, and one of the things I found most interesting in it was that there I, I kind of realized that the kind of inherent logic of continuous growth that is required for that for the for this model to work because I thought okay well once you guys have let's say everything worked out in the the way they wanted to and they have protection over psilocybin for depression treatment and, and some other indications. Eventually, if you want to keep growing, you then have to find other uses for, for the drug. And the problem with, with that with psychedelics is there's a massive ethical problem, but it also starts to change the culture of psychedelics because it now starts, now you're incentivized to go, oh crap, there aren't enough depressed people or, or like we only have a, we can only get some of the depressed people. Well, you know, maybe who else could, who else could do it? Well, maybe we don't need people who are depressed. Maybe we should just be telling people to take psychedelics anyway. Maybe we, maybe we could have an ad campaign that goes, you know what, LSD once a week keeps the doctor away. And then you start seeing billboards and like then the entire market, like you get the, the market captures it and that is playing with fire, seriously playing with fire, especially with psychedelics. Indeed, indeed. And on the flip side of it though, I would, you know, again, use another game B lens, which is the distinction between rivalrous and non-rivalrous goods. You know, the game A game is to try to turn things that are very low cost to produce into very high cost things. You know, think about the IP around music, for instance, or patenting of drugs that cost a penny a pill to make and sell for $1,000 a pill or even $10 a pill. And one of the really offensive ideas around people trying to lock up 
psilocybin with IP is turning it from what's essentially non-rivals, very inexpensive to produce, right? I think those little trays of, of mushrooms in Amsterdam were like seven bucks or something like that. Uh, you can be damn sure that if Compass gets away with patenting it, it ain't going to be seven dollars, right? And so, you know, that's a fundamental problem as well. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, that's a that's a really good point. I have a little quote here from Kerry Turnbull. So Kerry Turnbull has been in this psychedelic space for a long time, and he's created a, a charity called Freedom to Operate, specifically to, to challenge this the kind of patent grabbing that's going on. And he, he said, patents that attempt to appropriate pre-existing knowledge from the public commons, then sell it back as a novel invention, is a misuse of the patent system. So that's the kind of the dirty game at play, right? And and I think it's it's interesting to look at what like what patenting is for and is to kind of protect you on the, the risk of the amount of investment you need to bring a new drug to market and for that it's legit right for, yeah, you know, exactly. for, for about the 10 years because you know 20 year patent and it usually takes about 10 years to get through the fda process at least in the united states and so 10 years to harvest your intellectual property and then it goes into the common public domain of humanity that seems like a worthwhile thing yeah. but of course they play these games little minor modifications and then they repatent mm -hmm. and uh, of course, unfortunately, you don't have to do that. Often the uh, other one is available as a generic for a hundredth the price. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the real sick one is to take something that shouldn't have been patented that nobody invented and try to capture it with patents. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of an astonishing thing to witness. And, you know, it's not just happening with Compass Pathways. There's also other patent applications flying around. And the thing is, you don't get to see them for 18 months as a public. So it's almost like a kind of slow moving boulder coming up behind us. And as it's kind of cresting, we're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, look at that. And there, there's a whole, you know, it's interesting because it, there is a kind of fairly game B response happening of people creating, for example, IP commons, like a kind of like a kind of shared commons of, of kind of IP ownership that can that can act as a response to uh, there's like a cooperative ecosystem. Like, for instance, like publicizing uh, the public domain synthesis methods for uh, psilocybin as an example. Yeah. That, and that's something that USONA, so a not for profit, which is Compass's main competitor, you know, they have a commitment to open science. So, you know, they, they're open sourcing that and they have um, their not for profit model as well. And so that's there's lots of different options, and you know there's maps. So we mentioned before the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. They've been a not for profit for thirty years, and you know Lars at Compass, his response was, "Well, it's too slow." And my my response to that is, "Well, do you want to do it fast, or do you want to do it right?" Right? Because the 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 incentives you go into when you go into the traditional pharma model with psychedelics, I think, are not only unethical, but I, I don't think they're going to work. I don't think they're going to work, and I think that because of that, it means that the the field is is possibly overvalued and in a bubble. Which I've heard a lot of people. I'm not a financial expert, but a lot of people I've spoken to have that that sense. You know, something similar happened with the cannabis market as well, and a lot of the investors in psychedelics have come over from from big cannabis as well looking for uh, a new investment. So there's a lot of complexity at play in the space. And at the same time, we have this potentially revolutionary mental health treatment that also is a potential, you know, outside of the realm of mental health. And this is where my interest really lies. Psychedelics have the potential to be cultural change agents, if used correctly. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Now, let's make the a careful distinction between the medical use 
and the personal growth use or what do we used to call psychonaut. Psychonaut, yeah. We call ourselves psychonauts. You know, we are, you know, out to explore our inner space with these little molecules, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that that's a really important distinction to make. And so, you know, I, I've been involved in this since I was like 18. I've been this absolutely, you know, committed and fascinated to this space and that to the potential of psychedelics for cultural change and for creating the kind of open-minded, integral, nuanced thinking that I think we need right now, you know, something we talk about in Rebel Wisdom all the time. You know, I have a, actually have a model of psychedelic sense-making, which, which I've been developing, which uses a lot of the tools, the psychological tools that you learn in psychedelic therapy, whether you're receiving or giving it or holding uh, space for someone, and applying them to sense-making, things like in and through, or accepting complexity rather than trying to make meaning too quickly. So there's a lot of like cognitive tools and values that the psychedelic experience brings up that can be applied directly to making sense of the world we live in. So it has a lot to offer in that sense. And, you know, we saw, I suppose, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, and, and slightly before that, the, the power that psychedelics can have in transforming cultural values. Of course, it wasn't just psychedelics. It was, they are amplifiers. There was already a lot of cultural threads moving towards, you know, being against the Vietnam War, towards looking at other ways of knowing uh, from, from the East, different models, you know, uh, responding to the kind of rigidity of the kind of 1950s culture, you know. So I'm curious and, and hopeful that psychedelics, if they are embedded in it in a kind of, in a sensible culture, because of course a setting that you do it in is everything, you know. And so like if you tell people psychedelics are about some new age crap and they're going to all be like rainbow people from the fifth dimension, that's the experience people will, will generally have. If you, if you have a different narrative around it, that these are medical things for sick people, that's often, that's the experience people will have as well. So then, and this is a, a point Eric Davis, who we've had on Rebel Wisdom a few times, he makes really, really well. It's like the narrative you tell around them changes the experience people have with them. And that is quite unique and maybe it's true with other things as well, uh, but it's, it's particularly unique with psychedelics. And so the battle for narrative control over what they are, mainly, are they medicines? Are they countercultural tools? Are they indigenous healing tools? Are they for fun? You know, wh whatever it might be, the narrative warfare is having an effect on the experience people have. So there's a feedback mechanism going on. And I think that is often missed in the mainstream because everyone's just so focused on, uh, oh, look at these great study results. Yeah, and that's, that's a very good point. And, you know, I, you know, my response to that would be there doesn't have to be just one narrative. and There shouldn't be, right? These things may well be useful for specific controlled medical usage. And, oh, by the way, something I forgot to mention I was going to bring up earlier. When we talk about clinical trials, there's actually two thresholds for clinical trials. One is safety. But the other is efficacy, right? Which is, is it actually effective for the condition? And that's really the reason for the you know, double blind gold standard study. You, know, you can get to safety by just you know, giving it out to you know, people in a park, right? You can't get to efficacy that way. So the, the, the real reason to do the gold standard double blind clinical trial is to see, does it actually work as claimed for the condition defined? Right. And so it's important to pull those two things apart. You can get to safety other ways. But so in the medical direction, 
for efficacy. Does it actually work and at what rate to solve PTSD or depression or, you know, whatever any other things it has is, is, is one direction. But you know, say, say the broader narrative, you can have other narratives that it's for fun, right? And uh, I still remember a, a peak experience of my life was doing a light dose of acid calculated to be about 75 micrograms and uh, went out skiing with a buddy of mine who was a professional skier, a professional ski acrobat. And I was a not very gifted amateur skier. But that day, I was as good as he was. The crazy-ass <laughs> shit we did coming down this big-ass mountain in Idaho. Uh, I had never skied like that before. Couldn't even imagine I could ski like that, right? And yet, it was I was just totally in the groove in this light dose of acid for about four hours. And the next morning, I could barely walk, even though I was only uh, I was, you know, a young 22-year-old bucket in pretty good physical shape in those days. But I just pushed myself way beyond what I could even imagine doing under this in this four hour long flow state that I could only attribute to this mild dose of uh, of acid. And so fun is perfectly legit use yeah. in my book. That's fantastic. Oh, Jim, I have this this uh, picture of the seventies seventies ski suit and the just acrobatics, long long hair flying, long out hair, the backflips. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. I, I didn't try the acrobatics, but I did. You know, mogul bounce at really yeah. high speed, and you know, man, I, I literally I mean, it was an order of magnitude better skiing than I've ever done before or since. And that was the days when I was skiing two or three days a week. So wow. uh, I was uh, I was fairly good. So fun's okay. Yeah. And then in, in our game B uh, nomenclature, we talk about psychotechnologies. Yeah. Right, which is that we're trying to become greater sovereign humans, right? And there are various ways to that, right? And some people believe that psychedelics are part of that. And if we think about them that way, as uh, okay, so the experience for me, you know, the biggest takeaway I ever had from psychedelics when I was using them in the psychonaut sense was to realize how relatively small human culture is on the scale of things and how malleable. As I uh, told people in my business career, they said, How did a, you know, unqualified asshole like yourself be so successful. And I said, well, you know, when I was about 22 years, 21 years old, I realized that the world was more like butter than it was like steel. And that, uh, you know, I felt just perfectly uh, within my rights to modify uh, whatever I thought I could modify by, you know, by some level of force. And it turns out in the business world, if you take that view, it's surprising how malleable the world is. And uh, I would actually uh, say that insight came directly from my very first heavy psychedelic experience, probably 250 micrograms plus or minus. It wasn't quite the ego death one I did later. It was just shy of an ego death experience, but a really deep trip uh, where I could just see human culture as this relatively modest apparatus that I could almost see its moving parts. And I realized, well, if it's got moving parts, you can move the moving parts around. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, again, I would put those in the, in the psychotechnologies perspective. You've, once you've had that experience, you never see the world the same again. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting little point. You know, I got to know some of the other baby boomer tech dudes, you know, the uh, uh, guys that ran the other tech companies and such, and every single one of them had done psychedelics. Yes, that's very interesting. And I'm sure it's not a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was beautifully, beautifully expressed. I love that, like, you know, the malleability of the world and the provisionality of, of many of our systems is something that I think certainly has been a huge gift that I've gotten from psychedelics. And I think that's where it's countercultural 
uh, potential lies, right? Yeah, exactly. Transformational potential. Yeah. Yeah. Once you realize this shit did not actually come down from Mount Sinai on stone tablets, it's stuff that humans invented. And to the degree it's no longer working for us, we can reinvent it. Exactly. That is such an amazingly liberating yeah. point of view. And it's in some sense, the first step to being a game B player. Yeah. And and this is this was actually the thrust of my argument in, in my debate with the Compass co-founder was the the patent grabbing kills innovation in the space. Firstly, it means that we can't we can't play. You know, we're we're in a kind of rigid kind of defensive mode. I think it has the risk of killing innovation. And the other thing is that you know, as a community, we can do better because the, these. And I think that's where the energy is in in the the whole psychedelic community responding to these patent grabs. Is that the patent system misusing the patent system and cheating an existing system? There's no more sort of embedded um, kind of stagnant way of doing things than playing the game to tie it up. You know, that just feels like the opposite of looking at the world and looking at these substances and going, how do we create a really multidisciplinary, fluid ecosystem where, like you said before, I totally agree with this, where everything has its place. You know, the clinical medical model, I think, is very important for people who are vulnerable or are suffering from something like long-term depression. They shouldn't be going to a retreat in, in the Amazon. They shouldn't be going to a retreat anywhere else because they, that can't care for them well. And usually most retreat centers or the ones that are worth their salt screen people out with certain conditions for that reason. So there's plenty of space in the ecosystem for people to play. And you know what I've started um, thinking about, and I think it applies beyond psychedelics, is you know in a sort of like a game B ecosystem, how do you have a healthy immune response to a game A entity coming into it, like a like I say an invasive species like eucalyptus? You have this beautiful forest, and everything is kind of like in a kind of dynamic flow, and then some asshole comes and plants some eucalyptus in it, and then five years later it's or bamboo, and it's spreading everywhere. You know, and that's the question. That's the exciting question as well is, is what does it look like to start having these antibodies pop up and being like, uh-uh, fuck that. We're not doing that. We're going to do it this way. Um, and that's a, that's a interesting thing to watch play out. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that, in, you know, getting on an area that I follow real close anymore, uh, that there are these not-for-profits and these IP pools that are essentially, um, you know, sounds like they were there prior, but they also can act as an immune system against people trying to overly stifle the game through game A motherfucker tactics, right? <laughs> exactly. And yeah, absolutely. And it is, um, yeah, it is heartening to see. And and I think there's more to be done. And this, this for me, comes to the, the kind of crux of it is like, can, can a game B approach be robust and flexible enough to beat the game A pressures on it? That is the question of the yeah. hour, right? Yes, uh, it is. You know, you know, we claim that we can, but we haven't proved it yet. Yeah. So, hey, Game B players out there, why don't one of you go start a uh, generic pharmaceutical company? You know, actually, it turns out you don't actually have to do the manufacturing yourself. Plenty of people in India are happy to do that. And do it around the public domain version of psilocybin. And uh, so that there is a low cost, uncontestably public domain. And, you know, that's the other assholes will harass you. Uh, but as a generic company, there's uh, some very interesting protections, actually, in the law, which are worth learning about. And uh, put that flag in the ground, right? And so that there will be a low-cost, uh, efficacious form of psilocybin available for these other uses. Absolutely. Yes, please. And let us know uh, if you do that. We'll be there. Yeah, we'll get the word out. Yeah. We'll get the word out for sure. Yeah. And you know what, what else is interesting that I've noticed in this, uh, being part of this whole dynamic in this space is that 
very often it comes down to the individual if they're going to make a a game B or a game A decision. You know, and I've seen it. I've seen I've seen researchers and clinicians sort of wrestling with, oh man, should I appear at this conference that this weird pharma company is is putting on, or should I should I take this money to do my study because it's coming from X, Y, or Z? And you know, so they're facing the pressures, the real life pressures of make a decision out of your sense of integrity and lose money and perhaps lose status, or say yes and well either feel a cognitive dissonance or try and work within the system. But it's a real naughty question. And I've been fascinated by how much it comes down to someone's individual decision of yes or no. Like, well, what are my values? That's really interesting. And of course, there's also the interesting what I call game B play, which is to cynically play the game A fools, right? Which is take their money, but don't sign anything that's binding. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, we, we're, we're quite explicit in game B that it's okay to parasitize game A, right? And that in fact, uh, uh, some of the winning strategies are to play game A's weaknesses against themselves. Uh, but on the other hand, it requires some real knowledge and skill to do that. So like say you're a researcher, yeah, I take money from the game A motherfuckers, but I don't give them any rights, right? Yeah, and yeah, exactly. you just got to be real smart and, and careful how you do that. Yeah. yeah. So so anyway, let's, uh, we're getting up here to actually up to the hour here. And uh, so let's, let's exit on, you know, let's go far afield here. And what do you see as some of the interesting ways that psilocybin could get out into the world outside of the medical model? You know, and what might be cool about that? What might be great about that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many options. There's so many options. I mean, one thing is around creativity and innovation. You know, there's been some studies done at LSD with that, but like, as we know, psilocybin unlocks a huge amount of creativity for in a lot of people. And I'd be really fascinated to see what it looks like for there to be a, a kind of contained process where you use it intentionally to solve some problems as a group. You know, that would be fascinating. Look, because one of the one of the aspects of the psychedelic experience, like you mentioned before, is it has a, you know, as John Verveke would call it, this kind of allows us to zoom out, you know, and that like the original shamanic image of becoming a bird and having like a global overview is such a big part of it. So could we do that with systems? Could we all come together and look at a particular system? Let's say, let's take the education system, for example. Get all the knowledge, you know, spend a few days getting the knowledge and then go, okay, let's take some psilocybin and let's have a process and let's see what comes out of it. That would be fucking cool. That'd be great, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, and like, there's so many potentials for that. I mean, my pet theory is, you know, monetary theory. You know, get a bunch of monetary experts uh, and do it. But yes, I love that. That's a great idea. It's like a delicate assisted sense making or systems creation exactly exactly and so you know that that's something i I find particularly exciting the potential for that and then of course just the general potential that you know so many people have found in their lives of giving us clarity giving us a sense of connection um you know actually rosalind watts who i mentioned earlier you know she has a model of psychedelics as connecting agents which i think is very useful they help connect us to ourselves to our environment uh to each other and so that, that, that general sense of connectivity is, I think, essential in a, in a fragmented and polarized culture as well. 
So, you know, that's another aspect of it um, that I think is, is key for our collective intelligence. Yeah, very cool. Well, I think we'll wrap it up right there. This has been a, a really interesting discussion. And as I said at the beginning, we felt free to wander far afield from the essay, but we also, I thought, hit the essay pretty good. So thank you, Alexander. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure as always. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.